Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the sharing economy podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 14th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host for this, our 50th show, is... Frank Pasquale, feeling very festive at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And how could you not be festive with 50 under our belt? My goodness. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Well, congratulations to us. (laughs) Congratulations to us indeed, and um, a big thank you to um, all of those folks out there who are so kind and uh, uh, seem uh, at least temporarily interested in this jabber. Um, So this week on Twill, we're pleased to welcome Leo Balatsky from Northeastern University School of Law, where he holds a joint appointment with the School of Law and the Bouvet College of Health Sciences. He's a public health lawyer with deep knowledge of drug-related issues and a serious presence in the contemporary peer-reviewed literature. Big welcome. Welcome, Leo. Thank you so much, Nick, and thanks to Frank. And uh, I'm truly honored to be here on such a momentous, uh, momentous occasion. So we had a little bit of follow-up from when uh, Mark Hall was our guest. That was show 47. Um, Mark walked us through, if you remember, Frank, uh, a rather fascinating assessment that he'd made of the potential impact of Medicaid expansion on North Carolina. And in the conversation we had with Mark, uh, it turned out, of course, that he'd used Kentucky as a comparator. And I remember at the time we asked him whether there was a sort of an in-depth treatment of other states or even really Kentucky. Well, uh, Gabriela Alcalde has partially answered that with an in-depth look at the impact of the Affordable Care Act on Kentucky, which appeared uh, this week on the Health Affairs blog. Uh, Now, recall that Kentucky was the only southern state to both expand Medicaid and to establish its own exchange, uh, known as Connect. Uh, As most of you know, after the fairly recent gubernatorial election, the state is in the process of trying to convert simple expansion into something more like, uh, I don't know, Indiana's HIP 2.0, and is in the process of dismantling Connect. Well, now we have some numbers on the current unreformed Kentucky, um, which shows a substantial increase in the proportion of Kentuckians with health insurance coverage, improved access to care, and an increase in preventative care with a, a decrease in emergency department use. Bottom line, Kentucky now has one of the lowest uninsured rates in the country. Sadly, uh, but importantly, we'll now be able to track the impact of the new governor's destructive work uh, going forward. Uh, somewhere in Lexington, friend of the show, Nikki Huberfeld, is seething. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, I just, if only we could have Nikki in charge of health policy for Kentucky and, and much more. I, I think I think we should just put that on the ballot. Yes, yes. <laughs> Though she might not have time to do the show as often as we would like then. So I don't know. All right. Next quick one. Uh, over the pond to Europe. The EU Commission, the Parliament and the Council of Ministers have now all passed off on the new European Data Protection Regulation. And the EU Parliament formally voted on it this week. Uh, why should we care? Well, it's a major modernization of data protection, and frankly, the first really big cut at the issue since the rise of the internet and modern communications technologies. It suggests, I think, that the center of gravity for modern data protection is now Brussels. Secondly, at a time when the US sectoral approach to data protection has been exposed as incredibly flawed, it should be highly educative to see a truly comprehensive centralized model in operation. Third, the regulation is not only horizontally 
comprehensive, but also vertically. It utilizes a far broader series of FIPS-related protective measures than are leveraged in the US. And I think both of those dimensions, the comprehensiveness and the broader types of measures, uh, should be on the table as we look to the future of health data protection. In complete agreement with you there, Nick. Um, I think it's really exciting to see this going forward in Europe, and I'm looking forward to see the ramifications for health policy overall. And I guess you saw that Working Party uh, 25, which under the new regulation will get a new name, it'll be the um, EU Data Protection Authority, as I recall, has already um, given the thumbs down to the latest data shield proposal. Uh, So there's more negotiation coming on there. And then finally, for me, uh, there was a really interesting uh, JAMA study by Chetty and colleagues uh, this week. It's been extensively covered by The Times, NPR, and so on. I'm sure you've seen it, but I did want to put it on the record here. The bottom line is that the poor tend to have shorter lifespans than those with more money. But among low-income people, major disparities exist in life expectancy from place to place, with even low-income persons having better life expectancy in affluent cities. And I'd like to bookend that JAMA piece with what I thought was quite a major piece of research from the Washington Post also this week, which tracked the decline in health for the white poor, in particular for the white women in rural areas. And some of the causes they suggest, I think, will be uh, somewhat related to our discussion with Leo today. Agreed with you on that, Nick. And um, I thought the two points, uh, one on the bottom end and the upper end of the income scale, uh, in terms of the bottom end, the story in the Washington Post of one particular woman in Oklahoma uh, and her early death, I think in her 40s or early 50s, uh, due to lots of complications from alcoholism, was, I thought, an incredibly well-executed qualitative complement to the quantitative studies. And I think the more we can encourage these sorts of journalistic and social scientific uh, collaborations, the better. It really gets to putting a face to the numbers. The other thing, though, that just was sticks in my mind that is purely numerical is how extraordinarily consistent the impact of income gain was on life expectancy all the way up through 100,000 mark, 120, 150, 200, etc. If you look at the charts, and I'll try to put them onto the show notes, um, it's really remarkable that you had, say, the difference between, say, people, uh, it was just just something else in terms of the the quantitative consistency of that uh, impact. So I guess my uh, one item for the lightning round this week, continuing our frontiers in the financialization of healthcare series, is a story by David Sirota that is actually in the International Business Times. And this study is, or the story is uh, titled, Aetna hires Tom Daschle and other former government officials uh, as feds consider its merger with Humana. And it's just a very interesting inside look on what is going on exactly in terms of the behind the scenes DC power broker maneuvering when we hear about uh, big insurer mergers. So interesting news there, especially for those of our listeners who are interested in the antitrust angle on healthcare, um, how the insurer mergers might be given, say, some preference over provider or other forms of integration. Not the last piece we've heard in that story, I'm guessing, sir. Indeed. So, Leo, welcome again. Um, Thank you. Boy, where do we start? Uh, This issue is all over the newspapers. It actually seems to 
uh, getting some real policymaker stakeholder um, action. I saw a piece in the Tennessean and it was called, I think, Opioid Abuse Has Death Grip on Tennessee. And, you know, I thought, well, there's the usual sort of journalistic hyperbole in the in the headline. And as I read on, the piece estimates that opioid abuse in Tennessee takes more lives per year than auto accidents. And that one in six Tennesseans were in various stages of misuse, abuse and treatment. I don't know whether that helps you get started, but we sure would uh, sure would uh, appreciate sort of an overview of what's going on. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great place to start. The uh, contrast between um, you know accidental injury death from auto accidents and uh, the overdose crisis are often sort of. Uh, put in the same in the same basket in that one is a success story. So you know one of the reasons why we're seeing overdose take uh, overtake auto accidents is is actually because public health interventions um, have been effective with uh, preventing injury death from from automobile crashes. Um, so that has dis- declined precipitously, and, and in some ways, uh, you know, thanks to s- successive laws and policies, you know, things like uh, guardrails, speed limits, uh, you know, mandatory uh, seat belts, car seats, and so forth. So at the same time as we've seen those injury deaths decline, the uh, overdose, overdose deaths have risen precipitously over the last decade. So um, overall, and, you know, there are actually a lot of components to this issue, as, as we will discuss, and we'll touch upon some of them. But uh, when we talk about overdose death uh, from drugs, it's important to note that there are, you know, a range of substances that are involved. So uh, right now, most of the attention is on opioid medications, uh, which are uh, synthetic uh, cousins of the naturally occurring uh, you know, opium poppy plant. And that is something that's been used, you know, from ancient times to uh, address pain, uh, as well as as a cough suppressant and so forth. Um, so these drugs are certainly not new, um, but they have, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, have become a major public health concern because we went from having uh, around just under 10,000 deaths uh, annually from, uh, from overdose related to prescription uh, opioids to having now over 25,000 uh, uh, in, in 2014. So within a span of a decade and a half, basically the numbers have, uh, to use the term skyrocketed, I don't think is an overstatement. Um, At the same time, it's also important to note that the uh, opioid analgesics such as Oxycontin, Percocet, uh, you know, uh, basically painkillers, are not usually the only drug involved in an overdose. So uh, the, the a huge majority, depending on how you look at it, of, of the overdose deaths are actually uh, have multiple agents. Uh, so it's, it's usually the mixing of opioid analgesics with things like alcohol um, and ben, uh, benzos uh, are responsible for the overdose deaths. So uh, there's a poly substance use issue as well. And then finally, it's 
it's also important to note that uh, a close cousin of those opioid analgesics is uh, heroin. Heroin, we think of now as, you know, kind of a, a sinister street drug was developed by Bayer Labs um, as an alternative to morphine that was supposed to supposed to be less addictive and have fewer side effects. And um, it turned out to be more addictive, unfortunately. So over time, it has been um, increasingly sort of pushed out of medical practice, although it's still uh, definitely used uh, in in, the, in Europe uh, much more than in the U.S. Um, but be that as it may, uh, heroin use has and, and heroin-related overdose has also increased uh, over the last decade. But interestingly, uh, the increase has come primarily in the last five years or so. So since 2010, we've seen just humongous increases um, going from around um, uh, 2,200 people a year dying in 2010 from uh, heroin overdose to uh, around 12,000 in 2014. And, and in 2015, I think the numbers will be even higher. So uh, many fold uh, about 400%, 500% increase. So I think the trends are really interesting uh, to think about because a lot of it, I think, has to do with uh, some of the policy responses that have been mounted to address the, uh, uh, the overdose and abuse issue related to uh, prescription drugs. Uh, so meaning that, you know, as we've sort of um, put the brakes on access to to those uh, prescription drugs, that, as we've constricted that supply, a lot of the demand has uh, turned to street drugs, uh, including heroin. And, and that's a really concerning trend that I, I hope we will um, discuss. Yes, I agree with you, uh, Leo. And I think one of the things that I worry a little bit about when I hear the public conversation in this area, for example, on the Diane Rehm show or other uh, you know, pretty substantive uh, radio programs, other, is that you hear a lot of emphasis on the etiology arising out of people getting too many pain pills and not really needing them for, say, their back surgery or their dental uh, surgery or what have you. And then later they start using them or kids around them start using them or something. And I wonder, I mean, I, I do understand why the popular media would focus on that. And maybe that is the key ideology. I, I don't know. It's not my area. But I wonder, you know, is, is it a, an effort to reach everybody and give everybody a, a sense of they could do something about this could really uh, distort the overall picture. And I think in order to give people a sense of just how diverse the problem is, I think turning to your article the uh, called Fatal Reentry on efforts to curb opioid overdose among those who are recently in released from incarceration, I think that's a really interesting case study because you're looking at this one particular group and you're saying, here's a very foreseeable outcome of people leaving the justice system and we've got to meet people where they are versus sort of a one-size-fits-all approach. Frank, I think you just hit the nail on the head in that, you know, a lot of the public conversation and the policy responses, as with everything, really, you know, they tend to focus on um, heuristics and kind of easy ways to understand a problem. And that leads us to having, you know, easy solutions. Um, this is a very complex problem, and I think that what you both 
we're just talking about during a lightning round in that, you know, we're seeing these very sharp increases in um, premature death, especially among poor rural, uh, both men and women, uh, especially white women. Um, that is That just really shines a light on the structural factors that are at play here. I mean, the heuristics of the salute, you know, the, the kind of narrative that exists around why we're seeing this crisis emerge and how to fix it, um, really ignore the structural factors that are at play, including, you know, poor access to health care, unemployment, um, untreated mental health issues, uh, you know, a whole host of factors that it, where the solutions are very, very complex and, you know, they defy easy uh, easy definition and, and, you know, in some ways challenges to rethink an entire economic and, and social uh, system. Whereas, you know, saying that doctors and pharmaceutical companies were responsible for, you know, basically flooding the market with these dangerous drugs and that got people hooked. And now we have, you know, just tons of uh, quote unquote addicts who need some tough love, that's sort of the conversation that I think, unfortunately, is dominant. Um, and and in, in a lot of ways, echoes past responses as well. I think what, what's different this time, and that's been noted in the media, is, um, you know, the idea that treatment is important and that uh, the treatment sector is just woefully under-resourced in this country for uh, a variety of reasons. Uh, but in no other sector of health care provision do you see the kind of gaps between demand and supply of, of services. Moreover, I think it's also important to note that the services that are provided are oftentimes completely not rooted in science. And that's very puzzling because the science is, is robust. I mean, there's a lot of research that is clear about what works and what doesn't in drug treatment, but yet a lot of what is available, and, and by the way, what we as taxpayers pay for is actually not rooted in, in that evidence base. So, um, you know, things like 12-step programs, and, um, you know, therapy that's based on kind of abstinence uh, approaches uh, and, you know, overall this quote-unquote tough love approach um, is something that gets a lot of support um, and, and the science is just not behind those approaches. Um, whereas approaches that are rooted in science, such as maintenance therapy, uh, you know, for opioids it would be using uh, methadone and buprenorphine and other uh, related uh, medications that are FDA approved and you know have been proven safe and effective uh, or shown to be safe and effective. Uh, those approaches are frowned upon, frankly, uh, from a lot of corners, including the criminal justice system, and um, that's nothing more than uh, you know stigma and uh, kind of a lack of a scientific approach uh, to this issue. And I think 
I think it's also interesting to think about how our regulatory, uh, you know, uh, the range of regulatory mechanisms that we have in, in our bizarre and complicated system for uh, assuring high quality, uh, safe and effective healthcare, how that has failed us in this particular in this particular domain. Let me circle back for a moment, Leo, to um, a couple of the things you said about multiple agents, sort of the poly, poly substance abuse. And also that uh, number you gave us of like a 400 to 500% increase in opioid abuse. Is policymaking here complicated by these multiple agents? I mean, at least at one level, I assume that if, and it doesn't look like it would be successful, but let's say uh, the, the the tough love group or the the, uh, the criminal law group were able to make a dent in the availability of opioids, wouldn't we just see a switch to more street drugs, um, heroin, fentanyl, and uh, and so on? Um, and why is opioid abuse going up so fast when there are all these other drugs? I think, Nick, you're, you're in very good company because the argument that you just made about the inelasticity of the demand for these drugs is something that, you know, Milton Friedman and a lot of very, very smart people, economists and otherwise have argued for a long time regarding our approach to regulating, uh, you know, so-called controlled substances. So, you know, the idea that you can throw resources at supply of, you know, drugs of abuse and therefore be able to uh, prevent the abuse of those drugs, that theory has shown to fail. Uh, We have spent trillions of dollars over the last five, six decades on interdiction and, you know, things like eradication of crops and border control and so forth. Um, and because there is a very robust market for those substances, for those commodities, frankly, um, in this country and elsewhere, we've, you know, that, that approach has failed. So, so you know, the corollary to that is that if you constrict supply of one substance, it's likely that the demand will turn to similar substances that are cheaper and more easily available. And that's exactly what we're seeing with the, um, you know, people switching to uh, street drugs like heroin, fentanyl, or, uh, you know, prescription drugs that are available through diverted channels. Um, the overall picture is, you know, it's, it's so you, you asked about why people aren't using other substances, why opioids are, are in demand. It's actually, um, you know, a lot of drugs are, a lot of uh, pharmaceuticals are abused and diverted. The reason I think why you're seeing uh, a precipitous rise in, in opioid abuse is because of, you know, opioids are designed to relieve uh, pain. And so they can be used for just about any, you know, healthcare condition um, that's, phys- you know, physical pain. Traditionally, opioid abuse was very prominent in places where people were engaging in a lot of manual labor. So uh, things like logging, fishing, uh, and so forth. So like, that's why, that's why, for example, uh, heroin use has been endemic in uh, rural parts of coastal Maine, where you wouldn't expect to see heroin, but because people um, have a lot of untreated physical pain, they were using it to self-medicate. So 
so self-medication for physical pain is an important factor. Self-medication for emotional pain is another factor. I think that that cannot be understated. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's my belief and I think it's, you know, perhaps sounds hyperbolic, but because of, you know, kind of to relate it to the election that we're seeing unfold with, uh, you know, bewilderment, um, there's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of unease in this country for a variety of reason and, uh, reasons. And I think that, um, I think there's a, this to some extent is a, is a phenomenon of massive self-medication. Um, but that's just my theory. Um, more practically, I think that, you know, people are, um, there was wider access to these drugs and they are very effective at treating uh, the symptoms and not the root causes of problems. And, and so um, they're, they're also moderately to highly addictive. But I think it's also it, it worth pointing out, and, and this challenges the heuristic that, that you kind of pointed to earlier, um, pain patients by and large do not become addicted to uh, opioids, meaning that if you know if you go in and you have surgery and you come out and you have you know a prescription for a 30 day supply of oxycontin, the vast majority by some estimates, uh, 90 to 95 percent of patients will not become addicted. So the idea that you know this crisis is simply a function of wider availability of these drugs and that they basically you know are like liquid crack or crack and pills as some people have called them um, that they you know hook people immediately and they become you know addicted zombies is just it's it's nothing it's nothing more than than sensation the picture is a lot more complex and it actually, um, you know, relates to uh, diversion. Um, it relates to poor access to healthcare, mental health, uh, it relates to a lot of social factors. So, um, and, uh, you know, it, it's also worth mentioning that, that that percentage of folks who do become addicted, uh, who kind of lose control over their drug use when they're taking prescription uh, analgesics, those folks uh, have, are likely to have some predisposition, either genetic or or otherwise, to to um, that, and that's actually good news because theoretically you can screen for that and you can mitigate those risks. We just haven't done a good job of of doing so. I really appreciate that perspective, Leo. And I was wondering, you know, given that you have been thinking about this for so long, and I know that it's been sort of implicit in some of your answers earlier today, but if you had to give a pressies or, you know, a three-minute uh, presentation to uh, very high-level uh, authorities, either on a state or a federal level, as to what should be on their agenda in the coming year, maybe a one-year set of goals and then a five-year set of goals, um, what would that be? What would be your top fixes here? That's it. Fascinating question, Frank, and I, I think that my main point and my main the drive of what I would propose is to do no harm. I think that in the context of crises, as often happens, as we saw, you know, for example, with Ebola, um, there is a very sharp, concentrated pressure on policymakers to do something, quote unquote. And a lot of times those solutions are make good sound bites and they are kind of, um, you know, they, they're a form of policy theater, I call it, you know, where we present say, essentially in a narrative to the populace and we uh, 
signal to them that we're doing something about the problem. Well, um, that, although politically expedient and useful, uh, has to also contend with the evidence and it has to contend with unintended consequences, which is something that, um, you know, a lot of policymakers are not comfortable um, thinking about. And we actually see we're seeing that play out, uh, you know, as an aside with, uh, for example, the 1994 crime bill with Bill Clinton currently um, and and, um, Hillary Clinton. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the 1994 crime bill, which extended mandatory uh, minimum sentences, and there are a bunch of other provisions that wound up accelerating the rate of mass incarceration in this country, um, the unintended consequences were not really considered in the heat of the moment. And, and I think that led to a lot of very, very uh, tragic collateral harm. So um, I, that would be something that I would warn against. And so some of the top policy approaches that are being now advanced, such as um, uh, mandated treatment, such as um, prescription drug monitoring programs, um, such as uh, applying um, longer and more uh, uh, sort of stricter sentencing to people who are dealing drugs that wind up uh, involved in an overdose. I think those kinds of approaches are um, short-sighted and I think any kind of solution that's advanced to fix this problem needs to be viewed in that framework of doing no harm and and mitigating the possible uh, adverse consequences. Sorry, that was probably a lot longer than three minutes. No, that's fine. That's fine. And I wanted to also ask uh, you about, in terms of the theme of doing no harm, I was actually just in conversation a few days ago with someone who was uh, concerned that essentially there was a grant program that was funding big data analytics at a large research institution. And the grant program seemed predicated on the idea that this research institution would get a huge amount of data from various state agencies uh, with respect to uh, prescribing patterns and then also with respect to the background of the patients and uh, hoping for some sort of a predictive analytics triumph that would enable um, uh, sort of pre, pre-crime type of monitoring and understanding of where there might be uh, big problems in terms of opioid abuse. And I was wondering if you could comment on, you know, your sense overall. Do you think that big data and predictive analytics have some uh, potential for really helping us to get to grips with the problem and get to the bottom of the problem? Or would you be, say, more on the side of uh, Julie Cohen and, and some other uh, privacy advocates who see this as an expansion of the biopolitical public domain and are questioning uh, whether privacy and confidentiality rules are going out the window uh, in order to promote programs of untested uh, efficacy? This is a good question. I mean, you know, I'm not a privacy expert, but what I would um, say is that predictive analytics have a huge public health potential. um, And I think specifically thinking about privacy of individual data, you can actually try to minimize the risk by looking at, you know, population level um, indicators and metrics. So just for example, um, one way to use that, those analytical tools is if you're seeing, um, you know, a certain amount of, as your algorithm would indicate, diversion and abuse of opioids, you might be uh, able to target those particular geographical areas with prevention um, interventions. So things like 
promoting naloxone access, promoting overdose education, um, you know, deploying emergency resources to those places. So I think you can use those data in a way that um, doesn't raise, at least on the implementation level, doesn't raise privacy concerns. What I do worry about is um, when you start drilling down to the individual level and the, um, you know, again, the kind of going back to the unintended consequences theme, um, using those data to to intervene on the individual level. So just, just to uh, be concrete for a second, um, uh, let's take the example of the prescription drug monitoring programs. So these are basically, um, you know, modified electronic medical records, which we all agree are, at least in theory, useful. The provider should have critical information about their patient before making clinical judgments, right? So um, prescription drug monitoring systems are basically kind of like a parallel EMR system that only tracks the um, uh, what the patient has been prescribed and, you know, where they filled that prescription and so forth. And these these systems were created to um, curb doctor shopping, so which you know is defined by you know loosely people going to various doctors and saying they have the same health condition and getting a bunch of prescriptions for the same condition, um, and then diverting those prescriptions to the black market. Um, they also were designed to track prescribing behavior by providers and. Uh, as well as uh, to, uh, you know, identify patients who might be uh, not just doctor shopping, but who might who might have a, a problem with uh, um, uh, o- opioids or polydrug use and so forth. So in theory, you know, this is a positive system um, that provides information, maximum amount of information to healthcare providers. In practice, what we've seen um, is, so, you know, there are a bunch of issues with these uh, PDMPs, prescription drug monitoring programs. So, uh, but one one of the privacy and sort of like the implications that you, you discussed, issues that, that I'm concerned about is, first of all, that law enforcement officers and agencies have access to PDMP data um, in about, I think, 22 or 23 states. They don't even need any kind of uh, uh, pre-authorization review. They can just access those data without any kind of uh, pretty much no no judicial oversight, um, which is problematic. I mean, that's that's kind of a unique case, right? Um, That, in addition to being a privacy concern, to me is also a public health problem, because if you are someone with, uh, you know, a a drug dependency issue, and you show up to a healthcare provider, and they look you up on the PDMP, and they call the police, um, then it's probable that you and your friends who might have the same issue, and people who read the newspaper, uh, might not go to a healthcare provider next time they need uh, assistance either with their drug use or with any other healthcare matter. Uh, similarly, you know, if cops show up at your door um, after you go to a doctor uh, because they just have access to those data, that's that's the same. You know, the same kind of collateral harm applies. Um, so I think. The uh, you know the best case scenario is that using PDMP data might have very positive effect um, if the providers take those data and use them in ways that inform uh, you know clinical decision making to 
address the problem at hand. You know, if, if a provider uses the PDMP data and it suggests that this particular patient might have an issue with with abusing prescription drugs, um, it would be great if that provider connected that that a patient with drug treatment, you know, ideally by walking them down the hall or prescribing them buprenorphine right there and then, um, and connecting them to counseling and figuring out what other issues might be at hand that are causing this person to struggle with, uh, with substance use. If, on the other hand, the response of the provider is to say, oh, I see that you might be abusing these drugs, you are now fired from my practice, I don't ever want to see you, and I might, might call the cops, um, that's just, that is exactly the opposite of the way that we should be using those data. So I think, um, you know, the bottom line, and, and this probably goes for everything, but it's, it's not just the data that we collect, but how do we use those data to, to to, uh, to do good and not not actually cause, um, not to fuel the problems that we're trying to solve. Certainly there are some well-known problems with uh, PDMPs, uh, for example, the way they don't um, integrate into many electronic health record systems. And the privacy issues, which I suppose are being debated um, to an extent at the moment with the, uh, the NPRM on um, 45 CFR Part 2 and so on, there is quite a lot of variance between Absolutely. the PDMPs MPs, um, and particularly, for example, as to whether the a physician is under an obligation to consult a PDMP prior to uh, prescribing. Is it worth our while looking at those different PDMPs and trying to get a uniform approach? Or are these just tools, Leo, and frankly, they're only as good as the policy that we could all agree to uh, as to what to do with these kinds of tools? Hard question, but uh, I think, uh, of course, they're you know just information tools, and at that, they're poor information tools. Uh, what you just mentioned as far as interoperability, um, it's not just interoperability with EMR, it's also interoperability between states. These are state-based systems. There are state jurisdictions are governed by state policies. They all have, I mean, it, it really runs the gamut. They are not uh, nowhere near uniformly used. So you can rely on the data that you're seeing, but you also are not seeing a lot of what's going on because a lot of a lot of physicians are not um, accessing the system and not inputting um, data. Uh, it's somewhat different with pharmacy data because I think those are automatically entered. But uh, be that it is as it may, you know they present they do present a fragmented picture. Um, they are uh, you know they vary. There's such wide variance in in the design and you know what's included. Some systems include just Schedule Two drugs. Most include Schedule Two and Three. Some include Schedule two, three, and four. And in other words, you know, the coverage is, is variant. But at the, at the end of the day, I think it's really, really important to um, think about what do we need to do to make sure that these data are inform good clinical practice and good policy versus knee-jerk reactions that might actually be excluding people, pushing people away from the healthcare system at the very time that they need the help the most. I mean, we need to bring patients in and engage them and provide them with resources and treatment. And I think everyone agrees on that. And at the same time, you have this 
um, very big push that's acting at cross purposes by advancing an intervention that essentially either directly or indirectly by affecting people's perception frames the healthcare encounter as moderated by law enforcement. And that's exactly what we don't want. Um, you know, at the same time, as we're talking about advancing a health a approach or a public health approach to substance use, we're essentially uh, securitization or, you know, you, you bring the police state into the interaction between a provider and the patient. And that's that's, I think, um, exactly the opposite of what we want. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A very special thank you to Professor Boletsky for joining us. Uh, he can be found on Twitter at Leo Boletsky. That's L-E-O-B-E-L-E-T-S-K-Y. Thank you so much for joining us, Leo. Thank you so much to both of you. I really appreciate it and enjoyed, enjoyed the conversation. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, this is now going to be a threat. If you want episode 51, you have to go and rate the show. <laughs> Uh, you can contact me at Nicholas Terry and I C O L A S T E R R Y on Twitter and Frank. Where can you be reached this week in health Please law? Please follow me at Health PI. That stands for Health Privacy and Innovation on Twitter. Well, thank you, and thank you for joining us. And have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>